0: And on that note, let's pray right now. Father God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this moment that we can gather here together as a church, as a community, as a body of believers. And right now, as we open your word, we, we ask that we can hear your voice. We ask that you can speak truth into our lives and that we can be changed because of it and live better lives. You pray in your name. Amen. So we're in the middle of a a three-part series called Rules of Engagement, which is basically looking at the relational aspect of our lives. Because we come together here and we are a community. We have to interact with each other, and the way that we choose to live impacts the people around us, and the way that people around us choose to live impacts our lives as well. So last week we were looking at this idea of influence. That all of us carry a certain amount of influence, and the way that we live our lives impacts the lives of others. And because of that, that should make an impact on the way we choose to live. Rules of engagement: We should be thinking about the people around us, particularly the young people, was the context of last week. But today we're going to move into a different direction. We're going to move into a fun topic called conflict. Now I know that conflict is this is just a theoretical practice, thought, right? This, This is something that we don't really actually have to deal with, but we process the idea of conflict in case we ever get into a situation where we would have conflict, because I know people like you don't actually experience much conflict in your life, right? Truth is, we experience a lot of conflict in our life. Sometimes conflict seems to be as present as the air that we breathe. It is just everywhere you go, we experience conflict with people that are very close to us. We experience conflict with people that are very distant from us, people that we don't even know, but we experience conflict all the time. My guess is that every one of you sitting here right now, every one of you have in some way, some shape or form, experienced conflict this very week, maybe even this very morning. Likely, the person that you experience conflict with lives with you. Because it seems to be the people that are closest to us are the ones that we are most frequently engaged in this thing called conflict. And so, if we're going to be talking about what it means to live in community, what it means to interact with each other, one of the things that we have to deal with, one of the things that we have to address is how do we approach conflict in our lives? Because it's inescapable. We find it everywhere. The only question is not if you're going to experience conflict. But how will you deal with it? How will you approach it? How will you process it in your life? Can we master the art of conflict? So we're continuing where we left off in Matthew chapter 18 from last week. The three-part series is all based off of Matthew chapter 18. And as you turn there, if if you're going from the Pew Bible like I am, it's on page 913. And as we look at Matthew chapter 18, this is the, the key text on conflict. When you look at all the, what Scripture has to say about how we deal with conflict in our lives, this is the go-to text for it. In fact, it's such a, a pre- prevalent text when we're talking about this issue of conflict that we even, we, we even name it the, the Matthew 18 principle. Have you heard this before? If you're going through a problem with someone and you're talking about it, maybe with someone that, that also goes to your church, you'll say, boy, I'm just really struggling, not sure how to deal with this. And they'll ask you, well, have you applied the Matthew 18 principle? Which means that obviously conflict is what this is talking about. So Matthew chapter 18, we'll be starting with verse 15. And, and, and though this is a, a very common text when we're talking about conflict, though we've looked at it, it'll be very familiar to you most likely. Besides all of that, I think there's a lot that we can unearth from this text when we, when we take a moment to dig deep, when we take a moment to look at what Jesus is actually teaching in it. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, or if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. My favorite part is that last verse, because how many of you have grown up in life that whenever we have a gathering of some kind, usually it's the the Wednesday night prayer meetings in my childhood, that's what it was, and we come together, it was only like two of us, and we're feeling kind of discouraged, we'd always go to this text, when two or three are gathered, we'd always feel better about, well, God can still be here, God can be present, forgetting that this is actually talking about people gathering together to process conflict. And when you look at the text, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? In fact, it's so straightforward that when I first realized that the sermon was landing on this text and this text alone, I started thinking about it, and I was like, man, how can you preach an entire sermon on this? It's pretty basic, right? If someone offends you, talk to them. If they don't listen to you, bring some other people along, bring it to the church, go from there, boom, that's over. And as I was thinking about this earlier this week, I was thinking this might be a three-minute sermon, which I shouldn't say because now you're going to be thinking, well, why can't it be a three-minute sermon? If you can make it that way, make it that way. But the truth of the matter is that as simple and straightforward as the text seems to be at first glance, and it actually is even when you dig deeper, we're still really bad at it, aren't we? When it comes to knowing how to deal with people that offend us, When it talks about knowing how to approach people who have abused us, when it's talking about knowing what to do with the hurt that we have because of the way that someone treated us, it's actually really hard to practice this. It's really hard to deal with conflict in a healthy, constructive, positive, biblical way. In fact, I was reading from a a philosopher, young guy by the name of Peter Rollins. He's an Irish philosopher. And he talks about conflict and the idea of of how we see it played out in our nations. And he says this, he says, We call wars conflicts, yet war manifests itself in the inability of at least one party to face conflict. In other words, it shows the desire to annihilate the other rather than tarry with the difference. Catch what he's saying? War is stemming from our inability to actually confront each other in conflict. So rather than dialoguing, rather than wrestling through conflict, instead, we destroy the other. The Troubles, aka the Northern Ireland conflict, like all wars, was partly the result of a failure to embrace conflict. And by this, I mean that wars are generally started by those who wish to attempt to destroy their enemy rather than enter into the difficulty of real engagement with them. We'd rather destroy the other than really listen to what they have to say and do the difficult work of sitting in the same room, hashing out the relevant issues. War can be seen then as the failure of politics, which is the arena in which true conflict should be played out. You know, it might be true for nations, but it's also true for us. And by this, I'm going to give the generous assumption that that in avoiding conflict, you're not actually destroying people, right? I'm, I'm hoping that in your avoidance of conflict, you're not annihilating other people so you don't have to confront it. That's a safe assumption, right? Please say yes, yes. But the truth is that even though we don't annihilate one another, we still have a problem with embracing the conflict that is around us because we find other ways to actually avoid the conflict in our lives. And this is, when I say we, I mean I, because the truth is that, if I'm to be completely transparent, conflict is hard for me. I'm a passive person, and I'm a people pleaser. And those two things are like a deadly combination when it comes to trying to have healthy conflict. And so what my typical MO is, is if somebody offends me, if somebody is going to bother me in some kind of way, my typical uh, way of approaching this is to simply take that hurt to take that pain and then I bottle it up inside. But what happens when you bottle it up inside is it begins to fester, doesn't it? When you take the pain and you just keep it within and you don't share it with anybody, it begins to turn into something toxic. And that toxic nature begins to impact the way that you interpret events Around you, In other words, what happens is the person, the, the offending party, when I see them, no matter what the context is of the situation, no matter what they say, no matter what actions they're taking, I take those actions and I interpret them through the filter of my offended mind. And suddenly the most benign of comments, the most innocent of actions, are seen through the lens of pain. And I think of them in a different sort of way. Have you ever done this? Am I the only person who's done this? And so everything that they do is actually wrong because I actually haven't taken the time to process properly what has taken place. I haven't taken the time to do the difficult work of conflict by entering into a conversation with someone else. And when you look at what Jesus says, he says it so clearly and so plainly. If someone offends you, talk to them. It's pretty basic. Just go have a conversation and do it alone. The key part is do it alone, usually. We should make a caveat there. Usually, doing it alone is the right thing to do. Because here's the, the, the real thing, is I think that there's something inside of us that we actually have an urge to do this in one way or another. Because when someone hurts us, when we're offended, when we feel like we're in some kind of conflict, our natural reaction is to actually talk about it. So when you take somebody like myself, somebody who is a people pleaser, somebody who is passive, what am I going to do? If I can't keep it in any longer, if, I, if I've tried to bottle it up and that's not working, I still want to talk about it. But rather than talking about it to the person who actually offended me, what I do is I talk about it with people who are safe. I talk about it with my friends, people who are going to agree and take my side, and I begin to spew out the different words that I have inside, and I try to build my case with the yes people around me who will agree with me. There's a quote from Ellen White who talks about this. She says this, do not suffer resentment to ripen into malice. Do not allow the wound to fester and break out into poisoned Words. In other words, if you keep it inside, if you choose to bottle, it, bottle up, eventually what happens, what will usually happen, is it will fester. It will come out, and it will come out in poisoned words. Look at this, which taints the minds of those who hear. Do not allow bitter thoughts to continue to fill your mind and to fill his. Go to your brother, and in humility and sincerity, talk with him about this matter. See, this is the thing. As we find ourselves keeping it bottled inside, and then it spews out eventually, and we color the minds of other people. How many times in your life have you been around somebody else? Have you been around someone else who tells you a story about somebody you don't know, and you can never look at them in the same kind of way? Sometimes it can take months or years to get over a prejudice that you have based on somebody else's pain, something that you've never actually experienced, but you've heard the words of them. And see, it's not really a fair thing to do either, because what I'm doing, when I find myself doing this, which, I, which again, like this is the natural tendency, I think. And I'm guessing it's not just for me, but for a lot of you as well. The natural tendency is that rather than speak with the person that you have conflict with, to speak to somebody else about how upset you are at the person. But what we're doing is we're, in a sense, creating sort of a verbal effigy. Right, like, like this idea of this, this effigy is when we're really upset at somebody in order to demonstrate that. We, we create a model of them, and then we abuse that model as a way to show our displeasure, to show our protest. But the thing is, is that thing, that model, that representation of a person doesn't push back. That representation of a person doesn't challenge the thoughts and assumptions that you have. That representation of a person can't fight back. And that's what we're doing when we, when we take our words and we put them out there. And we try to express them to someone other than the person that has actually offended us. And the thing is, is we've gotten really good at this today because now we have this little place to go called the Internet. And with the Internet, we can displace all of our hurt feelings, all of our emotions. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's just who knows what. But we put it out there, and it becomes this defenseless place where we just put it out there and spew our feelings rather than actually taking the time to confront them. Because when we we're actually willing to go about the hard work of conflict, when we we're willing to actually go to somebody that has bothered us in some kind of way, things change. Because suddenly, when you actually have to look at the white of someone's eyes, when you actually have to see that there's a, there's a face there, humanity comes back. You're confronted with this idea that the person you're upset with is more than just a one-dimensional figure. You're you're confronted with this idea that there's complexities to their life. You're confronted with this idea that there may be more to it than just your one side of the story. And you see the humanity of the person that's standing before you. You see that this is a person that God created, even if you wish he didn't. (laughs) You see it as someone that's created in God's image, even if it's sometimes hard to see. You see it is a child of God, someone that God loves. There's a story, you've probably likely heard it before, from uh, Stephen Covey, from the classic book, the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he talks about uh, riding home in a, in a subway. And this has always stood out to me as this, this classic story of how perspectives can change when we're actually willing to engage with people he says this, he says that the man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The, the con- I should have given you the context first. He's riding on a subway, and he's riding the subway home. This man's kids are out of control. And we've all been there, right? We've been there at the checkout line at the grocery store. We've been at church sometimes. We've been in these places where we just see kids that are out of control, and we're thinking, why don't parents just parent these children, do something about these kids, right? Someone should do something. He says this. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing, and yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult to not feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too, so finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little bit more. And the man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, You're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came home from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Stephen Covey goes on to say, "'Suddenly I saw things differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with a man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed.'" In that one instant, it's a classic story, it's a classic moment when we actually take the time to engage with one another. It changes the very nature of the conflict. Sometimes it actually makes the conflict completely disappear. But even if it doesn't make the conflict disappear, it allows us to engage it at a different level. It allows us to do the strong thing, which is to actually confront it. And it allows us to actually understand why things are developing and perhaps change the way things go forward. You'll notice the way that Jesus says this. He says that if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. In other words, there is a potential relationship that's sitting here for the grabs. There's a potential relationship that can be restored in this moment if he listens to you. But I want to pause on that idea for just a second because I think the natural thing for us to do when we're talking about this text, when we're talking about this idea of how to deal with conflict is we immediately place ourselves on one side of the story, don't we? We immediately place ourselves as the one who's been offended. We immediately place ourselves as the ones who have to wrestle with this awful person over here, but is there a chance, is there a possibility that maybe we're the ones that are sometimes doing the offending? Is there a possibility that maybe we're the ones that we sometimes need to think, am I listening to people around me? When somebody comes up to you and they have a problem with something that you've done, are you willing to actually open yourself up To recognize that you may have made a mistake, that you may have been in the wrong, that you may need to repent, that you may need to try to do something to restore this relationship, or are we closed off? I can't tell you how natural my tendency is to become defensive the second somebody tells me I've done something wrong. I immediately have the excuses, they come rolling out. It's as if, like, it's amazing how quick my brain is. Sometimes my brain seems slow until I'm on the defense, then it seems so fast. I have all these reasons, I can just lash out immediately, well, this is why this and this is why that. I didn't do anything wrong. There's a moment when I was, uh, I was a freshman, I think. I was a freshman in high school. And I was at a boarding academy, and a friend invited me to his house on a Sunday, which is a big deal. If you ever went to boarding academy, getting off campus is a big deal. So went to this friend's house, and there was a handful of us, maybe five of us or so, and we were playing video games, I think. And as we we're playing these video games, I don't remember exactly what started the conflict, but something happened. Someone really ticked me off. I think they were making fun of the way I was playing. Like I wasn't very good at it, which wouldn't be a surprise. So they were kind of making fun of me. One in particular, one of my friends was really making fun of me. And I don't know what happened, but remember how I said sometimes I bottle things up? Sometimes it's going to have like a cumulative effect. And and so you can bottle things up and then you don't ever express your, your upsetness. You never express your feelings that you have. And so then one moment you become like Mr. Nice Guy transforms into the Incredible Hulk without the muscle and without the green. But nonetheless, you have this explosive moment where all the feelings from unrelated incidents come out. And I had one of those moments, and I literally attacked my friend. I jumped on him, and I grabbed him by the throat. I don't know what I was actually thinking. I was just really, really upset. And he immediately, I think he hit me and pushed me or something, and he said, get off of me. And I remember the first words that came out of my mouth was, I didn't even touch you which you know like for just a slight moment of objectivity i had my hands around his throat and my first words and when he pushes back on me is i didn't even touch you but it's so classic it's so classic of not being willing to listen to when you're in the wrong when you're the one that's doing the wrong thing it's so classic of our defensiveness to try and push the pain that we have onto someone else and make them responsible for our own faults so the question is when jesus says if the brother is willing to listen the question is sometimes for us, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to be repentant? Are we willing to do the hard work of being humble and admitting that we're wrong when someone wrongs us? But it's also on the other side as well, that when we, when we refuse to address things, when we refuse to enter into dialogue with people, we're perhaps missing a chance to change the situation. There is a, uh, a story from this, uh, this writer, her name's Lindy West. And she tells a story about about internet trolls. You know what internet trolls are? It's where people get online and they say all kinds of nasty things. Which, by the way, is the the exact example of why it's so toxic for us not not to address people face-to-face. Because you see it happening online. That when you don't confront someone face-to-face, all kinds of negative things come out of it. In fact, I have to admit that I almost have a Okay, note, um, I do have a problem. I do have a problem with reading through internet comments. Do you ever do this? You read through an article and there's a comment board underneath and I can get sucked into the void of just reading all the bitterness that comes comment after comment after comment. Well, it's gotten so bad that there's lots of companies that have completely done away with comment sections on their articles because it's just always filled with such hate. This lady, Lindy West, she tells a story of a man who was tormenting her Online, She says that this is a normal thing, that you, you, you get this kind of thing all the time when you're a writer, when things are published online. People all the time are attacking you and these faceless comments from people. But there was this one that really stood out to her because her dad had just recently died. And rather than just a, a regular comment section, she found a, a Twitter account that was made in the likeness of her dad. She says this, but then there's my dad's face twinkling out at me from my Twitter feed someone, bored, apparently, with the usual angles of harassment, had made a fake Twitter account purporting to be my dead dad, featuring a stolen beloved photo of him for no other reason than to hurt me. Embarrassed, father of an idiot, the buyer read, other two kids are fine, and his location was Dirt Hole in Seattle, which is, which is where he died. Well, she, she eventually confronts this this attacker, which is kind of going against everything that they always say to do when when someone's attacking you online. Don't feed the enemy, don't give them more fodder. But she decides to confront him, to to, to open up a dialogue with this man. He eventually writes back to her. Says, hey, Lindy, I don't know why or even when I started trolling you. I think my anger towards you stems from your happiness with your own being. It offended me because it served to highlight my unhappiness with my own self. I've emailed you through two other Gmail accounts just to send you idiotic insults and I apologize for that. I can't say sorry enough. It was the lowest thing I had ever done. But it finally hit me. There is a living, breathing human being who is reading this stuff. This stuff, I'm attacking someone who never harmed me in any way and for no reason whatsoever. I am done being a troll. Again, I apologize. I made a donation in memory to your dad." just fascinating that that this one encounter when, when he just finally reaches some pushback from the person he attacks, it changes him. And not just him with his relationship with her, it changes his approach to the rest of the internet where he realizes these are human beings that I've been attacking. I am done doing this. I first came across this story on the podcast This American Life and in that, they take the story, after this article was published, they take it a step further, and they actually have a phone conversation between the two. Lindy calls up this guy, this guy's on the phone, and they have their, their conversation recorded there on air, and you hear them talking, and it's almost like old friends being reunited. They've moved past the pain. Does it still hurt? Is there still, uh, is there still you know, can she forget the pain that he caused? No. But it changed the relationship, and it changed him, because he listened, but here's the thing, is we're talking about this idea, So we're talking about this idea of conflict, it's, it's easy to apply it to the, to the personal life. It's easy to apply it to how I should be dealing with any kind of conflict in my life. But when you're looking at this story, one thing that, or when you're looking at this passage, one thing that comes out clearly is the context is talking about conflict in church which is kind of appropriate, right? If you've ever sat on a board meeting, if you've ever been like in a committee where they're trying to decide what new carpet to put into the church, there can be conflict in church. There can be a lot of con- Peter's raising his eyebrows. There can be a lot of conflict in church, right? This is the context that it's talking about, is this idea of church. In fact, this is one of the few passages that uses the word Church and Matthew actually Matthew the gospel of Matthew is the only gospel that uses the word church. It only occurs here in chapter 18 and then one other time in chapter 16. Chapter 16 is when Jesus tells Peter that you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And he begins to, he uses the same exact phrasing that's used here, where you're, the things that you loose and the things that you bind here on earth will take place in heaven as well. Same exact language. So when we get to Matthew chapter 18, what this actually is, is just an expansion on the conversation that already took place with Peter. He started with Peter, but then he expands the same concept to all of God's leadership in church. So in other words, when we're talking about Peter, like controlling the pearly gates, all the jokes begin or end with Peter at the pearly gates, it's not really just Peter there. It's the church that's there. It's the church that he's talking about how they have the power to deal with things, to deal with issues that are around them. And so when we're thinking about what does Jesus say about the way that we should conduct church, this is like the key passage. This is pretty much the only passage about how church should work. You would think if Jesus was going to be sharing something in the gospel that he wanted the gospel writers to record, the things that would be recorded in there would have to do with, I don't know, the leadership structure. Who can, you know, whether someone has to be ordained in order to help facilitate with the, the ordinances that we do. Um, think about the kind of music that we have on the stage. Think about the kind of dress you should wear when you come to church. All these things that we normally think about are decisions that need to be made about church. But instead, the one thing that Jesus talks about when he talks about church as it's recorded in the Gospels, it's about relationships. It's about relationships and how can we work through the conflict that we actually have. You see, I think most of us know that church isn't a building, right? We've gotten past that point of understanding that church is about the people that are inside. But church also isn't about the things that we do inside either, you know, church isn't the, the sermon that's preached. The ser- church isn't the, the worship music that's led. The church isn't the Sabbath school, the Bible studies that take place afterwards. You know, if, we, if that's really what church is all about, we don't need to raise the $90,000 for the boiler because we can close it all down, right? We don't have to come here to do all of that especially today. You can get online, you can find a better sermon, I promise you. You can find lots of better sermons online. You can find music that you can listen to while you run. You don't have to come here to listen to worship music and engage in that kind of moment. You can read your Sabbath school lesson at home. You don't have to be here to learn in that kind of way. But the reason why we have church, the reason why we do church, is because we believe that community matters. We believe that community is something that's important. And we believe that community is why the church was given to us in the first place. And we believe that community is worth fighting for, which is why we need to know how to engage in healthy conflict. Because the conflict is always there. The conflict is never going to disappear. And so we, as a group of people, when we come here together, we will offend each other from time to time. We will say things that are not very nice. I will say things that are not very nice. And when we do that, we need to have the courage in order for, for the sake of the church, for the love of the church, we need to have the courage to have those hard conversations. Now, I want to point out one other thing about this. A lot of times when we look at this, actually, I'll point out a couple other things in a hurry. Yeah, one of which is, I want to just focus on this line, the binding and the loosing, because sometimes we kind of hung up on this, that, that it almost sounds like this weird power thing that the church has. And so if we're dealing with conflict and, and, you know, like I confront somebody and he doesn't listen to me, so then I bring in some church friends and we come in and we confront them they don't listen to us. Then it talks about bringing the church involved. and Now it sounds like this really big thing. First of all, I want to emphasize that church, we're thinking more like small group, right? This isn't appropriate when we're talking about churches the way we have churches today we don't need to air out all of everyone's dirty laundry to each other that's not what this is about it's about as small groups of community how we process the pain together but then we get kind of hung up on this idea of well what you bind and loose here on earth is going to have an effect in the in, in heaven and it sounds like what kind of authority did God give the church I mean like if if I'm being confronted by church people and they disagree with me does this mean like I lose my salvation does this mean that God's not going to forgive me because they're confronting me when that's not what it's about at all. For the grammar nerds out there, I know there's a couple, they say that the phrase of the binding and loosing is a periphrastic perfect passive participle, which means nothing to me other than this. It says that it speaks of a continuing present action that results from a completed past action. In other words, what this means, and this is how the NASB version translates it, translates it whatever you bind and loose will have been bound and loosed in heaven. In other words, the the things that we're doing, the decisions that we're making, as we're wrestling through this conflict, the reason that we do it together is we're trusting that God is present with us, right? It says that when two or three gather, he is there with us, meaning that he's actually guiding us, which means that as we're working through the difficult conversations that we have to do, we're trusting that God's actually leading us to where he's already made decisions. And we're being led through this process together. But here's the other thing I want to focus on usually when we look at this passage, we look at this passage in the sense of church discipline, which we can get a little bit squeamish around, especially today. This is not something that we do. We don't normally do church discipline. We, don't, we get uncomfortable with the church getting too involved with our business. But what I want to be clear here that what it's talking about is conflict, right? Like, like it doesn't say if you're there and you're offended as a believer because somebody's living a life that you don't agree with, then go and confront them. No, it says that if this person has offended you personally, has done something in, to you directly, that's when you engage in this pro- process. Because if what this is about is us looking out for the way that other people around us has messed up and trying to say this person's in, this person's out, this person's not really practicing Seventh-day Adventists, we'll never be done. There's never an end to that, it'll always go on, and it usually causes more pain than it does profit. My uh, first-hand experience, well not really first-hand, second-hand experience in this um, came when I was in college. When I was in college, my, my sister got married. And uh, during this, uh, this marriage, at, at the very end, she had always kind of wanted to have that father-daughter dance, you know, the classic father-daughter dance. And my dad decided he would surprise her and he would do a father-daughter dance with her. Now, now, you've, most of you have never met my dad, but you have to understand that's, like this is as far out of his comfort zone as you could possibly get. This is a man that even if dancing was like the you know, requirement to go to church, he probably would never go to church because dancing is not something that he does. No rhythm to speak of. This is not my dad. But because of his love for his daughter on that wedding day, he, he engaged in a father-daughter dance. It was more like a father daughter shuffle. I was there, I saw it. And uh, in, in this moment, there were was, was some church members that were there. And the church members thought, this is a problem. Let's do the Matthew 18 principle <laughs> confront, bring in other church members, bring it to the church. It became a church discipline issue where they, they brought him in front of people and asked him to apologize for his actions in order to retain his leadership. But this isn't what it's really about it's about dealing with relationships it's about keeping community john orberg speaks on this and it really struck me as uh, as relevant here he said the fact that we are not appalled by the amount of broken relationships and the persistent hostility between people is a sad indicator of our spiritual health as a believing community The sins we are taught to avoid tend to revolve around lifestyle issues. Drinking, smoking, going to the wrong kind of movies, or listening to the wrong kinds of music. But we are not dismayed by a lack of loving relationships. Relationships are what matter. Relationships are what are worth fighting for. Relationships is what this text is about. And the question is, if we want to be a community together... Are we willing to do the courageous things? Are we willing to fight for the relationships that we have? Are we willing to talk to people? Are we willing to listen to people? Are we willing to have the community that God created us to have?